Welcome, my name is Brad Cole. I know all the second year students uh, know me. For the first year students, uh, we start neuroscience in January, so you will get to know me, but welcome. Uh, this is a continuation of our Bible study from last year, and um, we're not going to get through much in 1 Samuel today because I kind of want to spend a little bit of time summarizing at least some of the claims that we tried to make last year and to um, kind of get everyone on the same page. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that you're here with us just now, and we ask that um, for each one of the students here that uh, we'd be able to put our minds on other things, to think about you, to come closer to you during this time. Amen. So we're going to talk about a little bit First Samuel today, but what I'd actually like to do first is to very quickly summarize everything that was done last year. And first of all, to kind of come back to if there's a central theme Certainly in this Bible study, it is probably the passage here in John 17. It's interesting, this is the night before Jesus would die. And you'd think, you know, if you, if you want to say something important, uh, Jesus' words here the night before he would die would seem like, okay, this is really, this is it. He wants to get a message to his disciples. And so what he said was, this is eternal life. And I think most of us, uh, just kind of as a reflex, how would we answer that question? What would you write down? What is eternal life? Okay, probably living forever. Okay, but Jesus' definition of eternal life is quite interesting. He would say, this is eternal life, to know you. And this theme, to know God, runs all the way through the Old Testament. We'll try to make a big deal of this every time we come across it. And that the words to know in the Bible have a, a deep significance. Adam knew Eve. They didn't become acquainted. They had a child. Okay, so to know means in a very intimate, relational, personal way. To know means also to know in detail the character of the individual. So we'll come back to this verse. But eternal life is to know God, and we're going to uh, pursue this all the way through the Old Testament. Now, if I could just say very quickly, these, we talked about this last year, some uh, principles of investigation. And you might not agree with all of these, but these are some of the things that we're trying to be faithful to here as we go through the Bible. One is we're trying to use the whole Bible. Uh, anytime we try to come up with a theology of a certain topic, we don't just want a verse or half of a verse. Uh, we really want to use the whole Bible. If the Bible is more than just a random collection of good literature that came together, 66 books, if it is more than that, if it, this is somehow divinely inspired how this came together, we really want to come with our questions taking the whole Bible. Okay, and sometimes that makes it easy, sometimes that makes it much more difficult. And we'll give some examples of that. Um, I think, and, and for me, this is certainly one of the most uh, fundamental things that I have to hold on to, is that Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is. Want to know what God is like? Well, we have to look at the life of God in human form, those three and a half years, everything that Jesus did, said, taught, his death, his resurrection, uh, that's the clearest picture. And kind of along with that, it implies that there are some places in the Bible where the picture isn't quite as clear. Um, and I think we have, um, we can use Jesus actually to make that point. Now, we read through the passage uh, months and months ago about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament, and we struggled. Why was there ever a time? for eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And of course, Jesus came along, and in Matthew 5, he went through many of those things. You have heard that it was said, 
an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And who was it who gave that rule in the Old Testament? Uh, well, it was God. But now, I tell you, love your enemies. So this would suggest that there were things that were done, rules that were given, things that were said because they were needed at a certain time in human history, and Jesus came to make it clear for us. Let me tell you what is really clear. Love your enemy. Also, extremely important that we consider the setting, the time, and the culture. We're really in trouble if we don't do this. And actually, most of our Bible study today is going to try to be to lay a picture a little bit for the setting of 1 Samuel. Well, for example, what would you, uh, let's say you're an orthopedic surgeon and that you occasionally need to, to save the life of a patient, maybe you need to amputate a toe, uh, an diabetic patient who has an infection, or uh, even to amputate a limb under certain circumstances. Um, would you like that taken out of context? And that it is said of orthopedic surgeons, uh, they amputate limbs. Better stay away from those doctors. Um, that would be taking it completely out of context. Okay, and the same thing is, is frequently done with the Bible. Now, I think most of us would agree that we take that approach to the Old Testament. Um, otherwise, we'd be stoning Sabbath breakers and doing all kinds of things. Okay, we need to discuss why there ever was a need for a rule like that. But um, I think it applies to the New Testament as well. Um, in the book of Corinth, Paul would say, it is a shameful thing for a woman to speak in church. Now, is it really a shameful thing? For a woman to speak in church? Or should we look at the time in Corinth? And when you read the book of Corinth, uh, people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and there were all kinds of things going on. Perhaps we should read passages like that in the setting of the time and culture. I think that's very important. And I think it's fair to ask hard questions, to be honest with God. Abraham, a good example of that. Remember God came to discuss Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham said essentially, well, you can't do that. Shouldn't the God of the earth do what is right and just? Okay, we have lots of precedent from some of the great heroes of faith that really questioned God. Okay, so it's okay if we read something and it's troubling um, to ask God. And just a, a passage here in, in Psalm that's quite shocking. In the middle of Psalm 77, the psalmist is rather troubled and would say, what hurts me the most is this, that God is no longer powerful. Now, we want to take that out of context and make that as a statement about God. He's not powerful. Well, we read on, and uh, presumably as David thought about it, and he thought about all the things that God had done, by the end of the psalm, his faith is restored in God once again. But again, we can ask questions of God. And I think finally, very important, that we prayerfully use all of the evidence available, apply reason and logic. And this last one is, is very hard, that we be willing to change our beliefs based on new evidence. Uh, this is a painful experience, uh, changing something that has been a conviction for some time. I can just say for myself, um, my wife and I started this Bible study in our home in 2003, and so I've had a chance to go through with students in a Bible study for some time now. Uh, there are many things I believe now that I didn't back in 2003. And um, I think, really, we should be on a search to understand things better. I think there is light for our time that maybe we might even disagree with things that were said some time ago. For example, let's say we're studying the book of Revelation. And this is my introduction to the book of Revelation. Here's what I think about Revelation. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. 
Okay, and probably some of you slip out the back at this point, if this is how we're going to discuss the book of Revelation. And not to be hard on Martin Luther, but uh, this, these were his words about the book of Revelation. And um, now later on, he did see some value in Revelation, but mainly as a vehicle to, uh, to hammer the Catholic Church. But he had a hard time incorporating the book of Revelation. And so the point is, again, we should acknowledge all the wonderful things that Martin Luther did. This is not an attack on Martin Luther. But... Are we reading the Bible merely to confirm what others have said? Are we reading the Bible just to look for things that fit our model and then to ignore the things that don't fit our model? Um, I think uh, the Bible, it's like layers. As you read and read and read, it gets deeper, it gets better, it gets more clear. Okay, And so we need to be able to incorporate new evidence and perhaps at times change a settled belief. Along those lines, I really appreciate this quote of C.S. Lewis. He would say, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And so what he's saying is his idea of God needed to continually be shattered and changed. Uh, throughout his life. And when we consider, you know, God came in human form, and how many people were expecting a Messiah like Jesus? I mean, those uh, were very religious people. They knew their Old Testament, forwards and backwards, and Jesus came, the Messiah, and how many people expected him to be like that, or that that would be his mission? Even John the Baptist, remember, sent a messenger from prison to say, uh, are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Right? So it was greatly misinterpreted in that time because I think uh, they hadn't put it all together. We need to do our best to put it all together. Well, five views of the Old Testament, and this is from uh, Alden Thompson, who some of you might know. And I appreciate this list. The Old Testament is difficult, and we're going to be in the Old Testament uh, this entire year. And so here are, generally, we could put in big categories the way different people approach the Old Testament. One is, which is quite common actually, avoidance. And some, whether they realize it or not, when they're looking for something devotional, very, very rarely turn to the Old Testament. Okay, it's primarily New Testament. Uh, let's, let's not get into all of those uh, battles and uh, slaughters of whole villages and so on. Let, let's stick with uh, John and, uh, or uh, Gospels and read Paul. So that's one approach. The other is uh, idealizing. And this would be if we kind of take the Bible sort of like as a kid's book. Um, we have uh, three children, and so we uh, you know, read through all these kids' books, and all of even the most violent stories can be put in just the most glossy you know, spin where, uh, you know, for example, we're talking about Samuel uh, here eventually in this Bible study. It's a wonderful story about it. he went to the temple as a boy, and God talked to him in the night. Okay, the kids' books generally leave out the part where Samuel uh, hewed King Agag in pieces. Okay, those, those stories are generally not a part of the kids' books. And it is possible, it would be possible for us to go through the whole Old Testament this year and just to bring up the positive. Okay, idealize it all. Okay, another, probably less common, but rather troublesome approach is to idolize the Old Testament. And that means we actually... Uh, relish some of the more violent stories and that uh, the real God is the one who punishes and does some of those uh, things that stick in our mind about the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. And we actually idolize, elevate those stories 
And if we do that, it, it's kind of by contrast, we, we tend to minimize Jesus. Jesus' mission is minimized to paying a penalty rather than perhaps revealing something to us about the person of God. Oh, another approach, uh, last year I read a whole bunch of quotes of Mark Twain and others, which is mocking. Okay, we take all of the worst stories, we lump them all together, okay, and it's quite easy to mock if you do that. Okay, what I would like to uh, suggest here, and uh, this is, again, Alden Thompson's uh, general picture, which I like, is realism, or sometimes called the low road approach. Now, we need to take both approaches. We need to, when we can say something good in the Old Testament, we, we should really try to do that, but let's not ignore the difficult stories. Let's not ignore even some of the flaws that the great heroes of faith had. And the advantage here is if we see how low things were, it helps us to appreciate how far God would stoop to reach people in that situation. So we need to really, I think, make a lot out of this. And um, I don't want this to sound like we're trashing the lives of the great heroes of faith. We're not. We're just going to read the text And we're going to read about what David did and what uh, Solomon did and so on. It's right there in the Bible. Okay, and then we can perhaps understand why God did what he did. Okay, finally, before we get into it, I wanted to just say, especially for the first-year students, that I put all these up on a website. It's called godscharacter.com. You can go there. And uh, I I don't know how you guys do it with all the study, and I don't think I could possibly go back through medical school again, so I'm not anticipating that all of you are going to do this, but I left a couple pretty representative... Um, talks. If you want to, for example, the flood, you want to hear what we said about the flood last year, that would be a good representative approach to some of the violent stories. And there's another one down here about the God of the Old Testament. Um, so for all of you who have lots of spare time, you can go back and, and do that. Um, as I said, we have three kids and, uh, you know, recently one of our sons was sick and we were up all night with him. And it just reminded me, you know, when they were little, you get no sleep and just one night, and I thought, well, there's no way I could do that again, have another child. So I had the same thought about going back to medical school again. <laughs> anyway, here's what we talked about last year. We talked about creation, of course. But then, of course, this, there's this serpent in the tree. What's a serpent doing in the tree at the very, very beginning? And so we tried to put the war in heaven right up front, that something was going on before the creation of our world. And, of course, it's not until the book of Revelation that that serpent is identified, the ancient serpent of old, or the devil, or Satan. I mean, he's clearly spelled out in Revelation. So we tried to, we've tried to make a lot about this cosmic conflict theology, and that we need to incorporate that even into the Old Testament. And, of course, we went through Adam and Eve, and how everything from there just cascaded down, with the flood, the Tower of Babel, and Abraham. If we want to have an approach here to the low road approach to the Bible... We read this about Abraham all the way in Joshua, okay, where we would say, Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river. And what were they doing? And worshipped other gods. It's helpful to have that context. When God called Abraham, it was out of idolatry. Okay? And again, perhaps that helps us to understand why God had to do certain things. He's trying to reach people who are coming out of uh, idolatry. And let's just briefly summarize. I'm going to go through this very fast here, but let's go through the kids. Isaac and Abraham. And we know that Isaac preferred Esau because he enjoyed eating the animals Esau killed. But Rebekah preferred Jacob. Sounds like a good home environment, right? And the name Jacob, of course, means heel grabber or to deceive. 
And he did a lot of deceiving during his life. Esau married two Hittite women. And these little comments I find revealing, they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. So we have this uh, early home of Abraham's uh, son. And of course, Jacob deceived Isaac. And as he's running off, remember that he had a great dream. The stairway came down and God said, I'm going to be with you and all these wonderful things. And uh, we shouldn't miss his response to God. Then Jacob made a vow to the Lord. If you will be with me and protect me on the journey I'm making and give me food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's house, then you will be my God. It would be sort of like, um, you know, if I pass this first test, and actually if I pass the whole quarter and I get into my residency, then you will be my God. It's um, not a great prayer of faith. Now, later on, we could see great, say great things about Jacob. He really changed. Okay, but this is where he was at at this time. And, you know, he worked for Rebekah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it sounds more impressive in the King James here in the Good News. It's not until the next morning did Jacob discover that it was Leah. I don't know how that's possible, but in the King James, it's uh, behold, it was Leah. Surprise. <laughs> okay. Now we know that, uh, I think I said uh, Rebecca, I meant Rachel. Jacob had intercourse with Rachel also. He loved her more than Leah. And again, we have this problem in the home, loving more than another two wives. That's a difficult setting. And Jacob deceived, again, this time Laban, by not letting him know that he was leaving. And you know the story about how they escaped and Laban caught up with them and that Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddlebag and she was sitting on them. And Laban searched through the whole tent but did not find them. And Rachel said to her father, Do not be angry with me, sir, but I am not able to stand up in your presence. I'm having my monthly period. And Laban searched but did not find his household gods. And the real question I want to have in here is, uh, what was Jacob's wife doing with household gods? Okay, there's still, uh, you know, I mean, we're just, this is Abraham's grandson. Why are we mixed up in this? And then horrible stories. We need to acknowledge these. The rape of Dinah, one of Jacob's uh, daughters. And you know how the sons tried to trick the men. They said, well, you know, we'll intermingle with you if you all become circumcised. And they did. And three days later, when the men were still sore from their circumcision, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, of the Levites, the brothers of Dinah, took their swords, went into the city without arousing suspicion, and killed all the men. And when we read the stories of the 12 pillars of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, it, it's rather shocking. That while Jacob was living in the land, Reuben had sexual intercourse with Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. Jacob heard about it and was furious. This is the setting. Again, more uh, inequality here. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the, his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age and he made him this beautiful robe and you know how the other brothers were jealous again. And so they threw him in a pit and into slavery. And while he's off in Egypt... Judah, I mean Judah, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is what Judah did. He married a Canaanite woman. And then he saw another woman walking along. And when he saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute because she had her face covered. He went over to her at the side of the road and said, all right, how much do you charge? He did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Okay, and when someone told him, about three months later, someone told him, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a whore, and now she's pregnant. He didn't know that he was the father. He ordered, take her out and burn her to death. Again, if we struggle with the violent God of the Old Testament, 
we need to understand that uh, there are not people sitting like you here, um, you know, and uh, we, how would we react if the 12 sons of uh, Jacob came in? What would they be like? Well, we get a real strong sense of that just in reading the text. Okay, but remarkably, God could make something good out of this. And of course, Joseph was a great witness to the king. And eventually, he encountered his brothers. And as he told them to go back off and get Jacob, he said, don't quarrel on the way. Do you think they occasionally quarreled along the way, those brothers? And um, anyway, after uh, the Pharaoh died, the brothers are worried, and Joseph said, and this was really a good summary, the point I'm trying to make, you plotted evil against me, but God turned it into good. And I would say the whole Old Testament, we could say, is very troubling Okay, but we see God, I think, at every opportunity trying to make good out of this horrible situation. Okay, we have the Exodus. Okay, the people leave Egypt, and you all know the story, how they grumbled and complained. Every chapter, it seems like, is another uh, complaint on the way out to Egypt. And we sometimes take the Ten Commandments out of the context of the rebellion that was going on at this time. Okay, but uh, let's just imagine here. Here's breakfast. It's, it's not a very healthy breakfast, I'll admit. But uh, let's say that uh, I am sitting my three kids down for breakfast this morning, and I'm going to give them the equivalent of the Ten Commandments. Okay? So I tell them, please, have no father other than me today. Would it be a little bit sad if I had to tell them something like that? We won't go through all of these, but if I had to tell them, look, we're going to spend a day together this week, we're going to do something fun, and they're rolling their eyes, oh, do we have to? That would be rather sad. I had to tell them, please respect your father and mother. You had to tell your son, please don't murder anyone at school today. Um, you had to tell your wife, please don't commit adultery today. You had to tell your daughter, please don't steal. Um, God is meeting rebels with rules. And if we read into 1 Timothy, we read that the law was made for rebels, rule breakers. Okay, God is meeting people where they are. And again, I'm realizing now there are a lot of shocking verses here in this Bible study, so I apologize, but here's God meeting people where they were. He wouldn't have to give this rule if this was not a problem at that time. Do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. Do not disgrace your father by having intercourse with your mother. You must not disgrace your own mother. No man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. That perversion makes you ritually unclean. Why does God seem so scary in the Old Testament? He is meeting scary people. And if you're, if you're going to meet uh, scary people, you might have to use some measures. I mean, if, uh, if the second-year medical students were in the back row using drugs, and if there were all kinds of uh, things going on in the back, uh, boy, we'd have to have some rules. We might have to be strict, all right? It would be an entirely different environment than it is right now. And then you'll remember, God came when he gave the Ten Commandments, and he... Um, he thundered. He scared them half to death. The mountain shook, came down in fire. And if we just read that description, we might think, well, that's a pretty scary God. Okay, but what were they doing 40 days later? Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. They're dancing drunk around a golden calf. It wouldn't appear that God uh, overdid it in the way that he came to those people. So they wander out into the wilderness, and God would say, how much longer? How much longer will they refuse to trust me even though I performed so many miracles among them? They wouldn't trust him. And so they went off into 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And we kind of mentioned this is a rather funny verse. If you read the Bible through quickly, there's really a lot of uh, humor in here that Moses dies, Joshua's the new leader. Okay, they enter the promised land and the people reassure Joshua. 
We will do everything you've told us and we'll go anywhere you send us. We will obey you just as we always obeyed Moses. And I've always wanted to get a picture of Joshua's face at that moment when they said that. But uh, these were rebels coming into the promised land. And Judges, we said, if an accurate movie were made of the book of Judges, it, it could not be anything less than R-rated. Um, the book opens with a man having his toes cut off and it ends with what is called the worst story in the Bible. Uh, a woman who was raped all night and had her body cut up into 12 pieces, delivered throughout the tribes of Israel. It's, it's a, an incredibly violent book. Okay, and so Judges opens with Joshua died, and the whole generation also died, and the next generation forgot the Lord and what he had done for Israel. And the whole book reads like that. There are a few heroes in Judges, like Gideon. But at least we should recognize it. Even people like Gideon. Well, we, you know the story how uh, the angel came, who it turns out was God, does a miracle, consumes the food with fire. But then Gideon isn't sure. And he said to God, you say you've decided to use me to rescue Israel. Well, I'm putting some wool on the ground where we thresh the wheat. Now, if in the morning there is dew only on the wood, wool, but not on the ground, then I will know that you are going to use me to rescue Israel. And we might think, well, come on, God just came. He revealed himself. Uh, he's not going to keep you know, giving in to these requests. But of course he does. That's exactly what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the wool and wrung enough dew out of it to fill a bowl with water. And I think Gideon thought, uh, kind of kicked himself at that moment. Because what would naturally happen? Wouldn't the dew get sucked up into the wool and dry off on the ground? And I think he realized, uh, you know, that was not, uh, that was kind of stupid of me to ask it that way. So he said, please let me make one more test with the wool. This time let the wool be dry and the ground be wet. And, of course, what happened? That night, God did that very thing. Now, who looks good in this story? Gideon or God, who was willing to keep... Okay, I'll give you more evidence. I'll give you more. I'll give you more evidence. But even Gideon, if we read the whole book, we find out that eventually Gideon made an idol from gold that was given to him. All the Israelites abandoned God and went there to worship the idol. It was a trap for Gideon and his family. And Gideon had 70 sons, for he had many wives, and... He also had a son named Abimelech, and we read last year how Abimelech slaughtered all of the other 70 sons that Gideon had. Okay, just part of the brutality in Judges. Well, Samson, maybe another hero in the book of Judges, sort of, okay, but we read here his dying words. Remember, he had his eyes put out. His arms are around the pillars. Okay, again, one of these uh, stories that uh, we tend to idolize or idealize, I should say, in kids' books, but his dying words are, Sovereign Lord, please remember me. Please, God, give me my strength just this one more time so that I can serve my enemies, so that I can be like Christ to the heathen. Well, no, so that with this one blow, I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my eyes. But what I find remarkable here is, you know, Hebrews 11 is known as the faith chapter, great women and men of faith, and there's Samson. So again, maybe God looks good in that story, not so much Samson. Well, here we are in 1 Samuel. Okay, now this has left out a lot of things, but um, that's a little bit of what we talked about last year. And we get into the same problem again, and this is going to be such a recurring theme as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, where the people who were supposed to represent God are failing miserably. And here we have Eli, the high priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the sons of Eli were scoundrels. They paid no attention to the Lord or to the regulations concerning what the priests could demand from the people. And the Bible goes into more detail about exactly what they were doing. 
But Eli was weak. He didn't do anything about it. And this sin of the sons of Eli was extremely serious in the Lord's sight because they treated the offerings to the Lord with such disrespect. And Eli was now very old. He kept hearing about everything his sons were doing to the Israelites and that they were even sleeping with the women who worked at the entrance to the tent of the Lord's presence. So again, how would you feel? You're an Israelite. Here are the religious leaders. You're going to offer your sacrifice and you see what these men are doing. Uh, Would this turn you away from God? And I'm I'm sure that it did for many. I mean, the whole history of the Old Testament is the people continually going after the other gods, like uh, Moloch. It's amazing to think that uh, God's people were so tempted by serving a god like Moloch. Uh, Even King Solomon, when he went after other gods, served Moloch. We'll read about that. Moloch was a god who they would heat up his hot, fiery hands, and they would put the babies uh, in, in the hands of uh, Moloch. Okay, but uh, again, it's very uh, disastrous here when we have leaders who are claiming to represent God and do these kinds of things. Now, in our time, if uh, someone misrepresents God, well, that, that often leads to atheism. Okay, and this was an advertising campaign that went out, I think, about a year ago. There's probably no God. Now, stop worrying and enjoy your life, which would imply some things. If there isn't a God, why would we stop worrying? That would kind of suggest that God is a a certain type of person. Atheism did not exist back in this time. Everyone worshipped gods. Um, And so, but in our time, kind of the parallel here with Hophni and Phinehas would be, I think, many people getting turned away from God entirely. Okay, because they see God's representatives and see, well, if that is what God is like, then I have no interest. And I want to just conclude... Uh, we're going to get into Samuel next time, but I want to uh, conclude by telling you uh, something interesting I read just a few days ago. Uh, on this theme, uh, I'll just make, mention one verse, but in Hosea, about the leaders misrepresenting God, God would say, don't put your fi- point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. My complaint, you priests, is with you. Okay, because you're the ones who are supposed to represent God. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Now, this ties in with eternal life is to know God. And you priests are not representing me as as I am. And therefore, the people cannot really get to know me. Okay, and so to finish off, I want to just tell a little story here. I had this totally different Bible study prepared until a few days ago. I read this article on uh, Roger Ebert's uh, website. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Roger Ebert, but he and uh, Gene Siskel here had a movie review show for a long, long time, um, which uh, I really enjoy. Just even when I didn't, uh, wasn't going to watch the movie. I liked the back-and-forth conversation that they would have. But Gene Siskel died of a brain tumor in 1999, and Roger Ebert continued uh, doing movie reviews, uh, but developed thyroid cancer. And in 2006, or around then, uh, after a surgical complication for thyroid cancer, lost his ability to speak entirely. And very recently, he had, uh, there was an article about him in Esquire magazine with a rather shocking picture. This is what he looks like. Uh, now, after surgery. But I kind of admire Roger Ebert. Now, he, I think, would say of himself that he's an atheist, uh, but the article that he wrote described, and and I decided to leave this off because I thought it might be too um, offensive. You can read it on his website. But he points out some things that he's heard from some well-known religious individuals that have uh, really turned him away from God. He said about this picture, when I turned to it in the magazine, I got a jolt from the full-page photograph of my jaw drooping. Not a lovely sight then I am not a lovely sight. And in a moment, I thought, well, whatever. It's just as well it's out there. That's how I look, after all. 
And so maybe just a, I, I don't know, I kind of, uh, I like Roger Ebert and how he writes, and so I have this desire to kind of break through. I wish someone could tell him uh, a different picture of what God is like. So maybe just to identify with Roger Ebert a little bit, we'll just do a couple of his movie reviews. He could have saved you the time of seeing The Last Airbender, uh, an agonizing experience in every category I can think of, and others still waiting to be invented. <laughs> he's he's very, uh, very clever with his reviews. Um, he didn't really like the, uh, whatever this is. Uh, now, I never saw these movies, but uh, the characters in this movie should be arrested for loitering with intent to moan. So he, he didn't appreciate this. Transformers, boy, it's hilarious. You should read his whole review here. But he said, if you want to save yourself the ticket price, go into the kitchen, cue up a male choir singing the music of hell, and get a kid to start banging pots and pans together. Then close your eyes and use your imagination. I find it amusing that creatures that can unfold out of a Camaro and stand four stories high do most of their fighting with fists. So, Anyway, so that's Roger Ebert. Now I'm going to get back to his article uh, that he wrote. And uh, he was uh, quite moved by an interview that um, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book, a very uh, famous book recently called God is Not Great. And it's my impression from what I know about Christopher Hitchens that, again, he has been extremely turned off by certain um, well-known religious individuals. And this has uh, really turned him away from God. I'm sure there are lots of other uh, complexities. But Roger Ebert could kind of identify with him because he's also an atheist. And uh, Christopher Hitchens recently was diagnosed with cancer, which uh, does not have a good prognosis. So Roger Ebert is identifying with Christopher Hitchens in this uh, CNN interview uh, that he gave. And this is what Roger Ebert writes. It's interesting. He actually disagrees with uh, some of the things in uh, Christopher Hitchens' book. For example, he said, Well, I believe religion in its many forms has been the greatest single inspiration for man's inhumanity to man, but I would not agree with Hitchens that it poisons everything. Those rare people who practice in their lives the underlying principles of their religions are most often good for themselves and others. Those who use religion as a means towards thought control and rigid conformity are twisted and deranged. Anyone who would use religion as their reason to cause unhappiness to another is guilty of a great sin. The extremes of both Christianity and Islam, for example, follow lives of violent repudiation of the beliefs of their own religions. And then I, I at the last minute, took out this slide because he mentions some specific names. But but here's what's really interesting. This is Roger Ebert's um, impression about God and these things. He said, as to the larger question of whether God exists, I would agree with Hitchens that we can't rule out the possibility of some indefinable first mover, although I'm sure he doesn't mean mover as a being, but as a force, to hope we can learn how the universe came about is admirable. One might as well call that hope by any name. Whatever one calls it, it's by definition outside the reach, not only of our knowledge, but of knowledge itself. I was asked at lunch today who or what I worshipped. The question was asked sincerely, and in the same spirit, I responded that I worshipped whatever there might be outside knowledge. I worshipped the void, the mystery, and the ability of our human minds to perceive an unanswerable mystery. And what I would like to tell Roger Ebert, his unknown, the unknowable, the mystery, it's so clear in the mission of Jesus, when you just read the first chapter of John, what was his mission? No one has ever seen God. Now, that's not very encouraging, but read on. But the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has made him known, or he has revealed him. I think as Christians, we have a very unique 
perspective on things. Our claim is not just Jesus is divine. He was God in human form. And he came to reveal. He came to make God known. Uh, God wants to be known. Okay, that's one of his, one of his uh, main reasons for coming. And so what I would like to suggest to Roger Ebert is maybe stop listening to everything. And maybe let's just read John. What do you think about God revealed in that book? We come back to this verse. Eternal life means to know you, the only true God. How do we know the only true God? To know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And Jesus would say, I have shown your glory on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. How did Jesus define his work, his mission? He made it very clear here. I revealed your name, as many translations have it. But name in the Bible is synonymous with character. And so the Message Bible just puts it out there very clear. I revealed your character. So what I would like to, if I had a chance to sit down with Roger Ebert, which I'm sure I will never have, uh, what I would like to suggest to Roger Ebert is that God is the kind of person who out of his, has all the power, no question, has power, but he's the kind of person that would spend nine months in the womb. That God is the kind of person that would spend his first night in a feeding trough, for that's what a manger is. That God is the kind of person that would grow up, would choose to grow up, not in a rich palace, but in a very poor family, that he would grow up and spend most of his life as a humble carpenter, uh, that God would grow up in Nazareth, from which it was said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? That God in human form revealed such interest in the outcasts of society, the lepers, the poor, women, heathen. And if we could just, as we read every story about Jesus, in our minds say, God is like that, God is like that. And if we want the clearest picture of what God is like, I think we have to come to Calvary and say, God is like that, allowing his own children to torture him to death and his dying words, our Father, forgive them. I think if we can somehow make that the core of our belief, this is what God is like, uh, I think people, maybe like Roger Ebert, uh, might even put their trust in God. Wouldn't answer every question, but I think that should be the core of our conviction. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we see in the Old Testament how patient you are, how willing you were to deal with a group of rebels. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Thank you for revealing so much to us. Help us to internalize a God who's just like Jesus. Help that to become the center of all belief for each one of us. Amen.